But today we are looking at one of the most well-known and one of the most influential sayings of Jesus when he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's short, it's concise, it's succinct, uh, but it's powerful. And it has had a powerful influence. Let me just share a couple of quotes uh, talking about how important this statement is. Craig Blomberg said, This verse inspired the Reformation doctrine of different spheres of authority for government and religion and proved foundational for the American constitutional separation of church and state. Kent Hughes said, The statement by our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Wow. So today we're going to be looking at the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. We're going to uh, talk about what it means for us today as well. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark 12. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 13 through 17. And this is the very inspired Word of God. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, we are very familiar with this passage, and especially this phrase, this statement. And I pray that our familiarity this morning will not prevent us from hearing you, hearing your word, and as a response, changing any area that we need to change to conform to you and your word, perhaps in our thinking, perhaps in our living. We pray you do your work in us, find us faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to go through the passage verse by verse, similar to what we usually do, and talk about this verse in its original context. And then we'll transition and talk a little more about how we apply it, and what difference it makes for us in our particular context today. So look at verse 13 with me. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. It says they, that's a reference to the religious leaders. They've been out to get him since he entered into Jerusalem, and even before that, but we've really seen the intensity. And they've already sent some groups to him, and they've not gone so well. You know, Jesus handled them pretty well. And... Now they're sending a new group. they got a new plan. You know, the, and they're looking for the perfect trap. He calls it a trap here in verse 13. It's kind of the perfect gotcha question. Where you ask the question and they answer it and you say, Ha ha, gotcha. Right? And we see the media trying to do this all the time today. Luke says it like this. Luke 20, 20 says they sent spies to catch him and deliver him up. So Luke is thinking of these guys as spies. And they're looking to deliver him up, deliver him over. To Rome. Now it tells us that there are two groups. This is part of their plan. They have two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees. These would be two groups that would normally be on two different you know, ends of the spectrum with most questions and most issues. This would be like today, someone from the far left and someone from the far right. 
coming together for some cause. And you say, what in the world would possibly bring these two groups together? Right? And that's the kind of way we should be thinking about this. What in the world would possibly be bringing these two groups almost always at odds with one another, but all of a sudden they find themselves allies. And the thing that unites them is their opposition to Jesus. That's what brings them together. And verse 14 says, They came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're saying all the right things. All these are good things to say. They're calling him teacher. We know you're true. We know you don't care about people's opinions. You know, they're kind of buttering him up here, right? And that's a good reminder to us. It's possible to say the right thing with the wrong motive, and that's clearly what's happening. And their goal is obvious, right? They're going to kind of butter him up. And then once he says, oh, wow, you know, here they are talking about me, encouraging me. They're going to hit him with this gotcha question, and he's going to answer it in a way that incriminates himself, and they're going to be able to uh, get him. You know, we got you. Arrest him. Verse 14, here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, what is behind this tax that they have in mind? What exactly is the tax? There's some debate about this. I think for our purposes this morning, we just need to know it was a controversial tax that, that the Jewish people in particular were opposed to. They were opposed to Roman rule. This was Romans were pagans. They were oppressive. The Jewish people thought, this is our land. God gave us this land. You know, we don't have to pay you for us to live here. Right? If anything, you ought to be paying us for you to be here. That's kind of the mentality. Right? And there's a history here. In A.D. 6, uh, there was a, a rising, a Jewish revolt led by a guy named Judas uh, as a, in response to a, a tax. There was a new tax based on a new census that happened in A.D. 6, and this guy Judas, not, not Jesus' disciple, led this revolt, this uprising, this kind of anti-Rome uh, rebellion. And Rome put it down convincingly and killed Judas. So there's a history here. There's a history of this question. Should we pay the tax? Should we not? Do we owe the tax? Do we not? And by the way, the history doesn't end here with Jesus. It, it keeps going. And in 66 AD, there's going to be another anti-Rome uprising. And that's really what's going to lead uh, Rome in 70 to come in and, and, and sack Jerusalem and the temple. And so, huge issue. Lots of emotions. Lots of anger. People killed over this issue. And they're asking the question, is it lawful to pay the tax? Now, they don't mean, is it lawful according to Roman law? Because according to Roman law, of course it's lawful. So they mean according to God's word, according to God's law. Is it lawful for us to pay the tax? And I think the Pharisees generally would have answered the question, no. It's not lawful. We don't owe the tax to Rome. Pagan, oppressive, evil, taking over our land. Right? We don't owe them the tax. That would be the typical Pharisee's answer. And, and I think the typical answer of the crowd following Jesus. And I think the expectation is that Jesus is going to say, yeah, it's wrong. It's evil. Don't pay it. And then they're going to be able to say, gotcha. And they're going to be able to go tell the Roman authorities. Here's a guy who is subverting Roman law, telling people they shouldn't pay the tax. So arrest him and, and, and have your way with him. Because it's the Jewish leadership who has the real issue with Jesus, but their issues are theological issues. They don't have political problems with Jesus. They have theological problems with Jesus. The Romans don't care about theology, right? They care about politics. Like, we don't want somebody, you know, stirring up a bunch of people to create some kind of an insurrection. And so 
the Pharisees know what they need. They need Jesus on record making a political statement that's anti-Rome, take it to the Roman authorities, and then we got him. And they're not going to get it from him. But by the way, they are going to make it up. They're going to go back and make up that Jesus said not to pay the tax, which is actually not what he says. Uh, Verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He knows their hypocrisy. He knows what's behind. He's not falling for their trap. He knows they're testing him. And test here isn't the sort of a neutral test. This is the same word that's used in Mark 1.13 to describe when Satan tempted Jesus or tested Jesus. And so they're, they're testing him. They're tempting him with a, a very sinister motive. So Jesus responds and says, bring me a coin. Does anybody have a coin? Right? And I think it's interesting. He's not going to give them a yes or no answer. Right? And that's a good reminder to us. Sometimes people are going to press you for a yes or no answer, and you don't have to give it to them, especially if they're asking you a gotcha question. And you're smart enough to know if somebody's asking you a gotcha question or not. So be smart, be wise. If somebody's asking you one of the, typically they precede the question with, I'm going to ask you a question and I want a yes or no. Just give me a yes or no. Don't fall for the trap. Jesus didn't fall for the trap. You don't fall for the trap. Right? Sometimes answers are more nuanced than yes or no. Sometimes answers require us to be faithful and say yes or no. But sometimes faithfulness requires us to say, I can't give you a yes or no. It's nuanced. Life is nuanced. Life is complex. Problems are complex. And oftentimes answers to problems are complex. And so oftentimes the solution can't be solved and, and, and stated in one tweet. Right? You, need, you need a little bit more. You need some nuance. Uh, so Jesus says, Bring me the denarius. And I can just picture him sitting there. Anybody have a denarius? Right? Where, where's the coin that's in question? Bring it out. And they bring it out. And Jesus holds it up. Right? Verse 16. They brought one. Roman coinage. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. On one side of the coin would have been an image of Caesar, which is sort of the, the king, the Roman king, the equivalent of the Roman king. And under it would have been this writing, this verbiage that said something like son of God or son of the divine. And on the back would have been this verbiage like the great high priest. So you understand why this was so offensive to Jewish sensibilities. An image of a God, lowercase g, an image of a God on a coin who's referred to as son of God, son of the divine, referred to as the high priest. Of course, there's a Jewish opposition to this. Surely Jesus is going to say, this is blasphemy. You know, Perhaps he's going to chunk it as far as he can. This is blasphemy. This is wrong. And that's kind of what they're expecting. It's kind of what they're hoping for. But look at how he's, what he says. Verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now you and I have heard that phrase so many times. Render to Caesar. It almost maybe has lost meaning. What does the word render mean? It means give. Give to Caesar what Caesar is owed. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Right? And, and, and give to God what belongs to God. They've, they've come here to trap him, but instead they leave marveling. They came to try to set a trap. Instead they leave marveling. Why? Why do they leave marveling? What was it about his answer that caused them to marvel? And I think the answer is this. The, the very fact that they had the Roman coin, the very fact that the coin bared Caesar's image revealed we're dealing with a Roman government. Like Rome's in charge here. 
we're dealing with the Roman government. So therefore, you owe something to the government that you're under. You're clearly under their domain. You're using their coinage. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And by the way, it's a very corrupt government. It's an evil government. It's a government that's about to kill Jesus, and he knows that. He knows this government is about to kill him. And yet he says, you owe something to them. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But then he says, give to God what belongs to God. And that raises the question, well, what what belongs to God? The answer is everything. You owe him everything. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You owe him all things. And so, interestingly, the coin bears the image of Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give him the coinage he deserves. But you bear the image of God. All people bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. Therefore, give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? All of me. I'm his, so I owe him everything. But wait a minute. If I'm supposed to give God 100%, but I'm also supposed to give Caesar something, if I give Caesar something, doesn't that mean there's something I'm not giving God? Like if I give Caesar a certain cut, a certain percentage, that's a certain percentage I'm not giving to God, right? And that's what makes this statement so profound. It's what makes it so powerful. Jesus recognizes Caesar and God are two distinct entities. Two different spheres, two different governments. And he, he, he's recognizing that. And we belong to both. We belong to both spheres. The sphere of man and the sphere of God. And, and Jesus is making the point here, this is what's so powerful about this, just because you owe something to the, to the kingdom of, of man, to the city of man, to the government, when you pay doesn't necessarily mean you're not giving to God what belongs to God. Right? The New Testament bears this out. God has given you government. When you give to government, you're actually honoring God because God gave you government. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. The reality is we are citizens of both. Uh, St. Augustine used this language. We are, we are citizens of the city of God and we are citizens of the city of man. So that's the image. That's the language I'm going to use here this morning. The city of God and the city of man. We are citizens of both. God's government, man's government. Right? And, and what I want to do is point out several principles from our passage of what it looks like to live faithfully as citizens of both. What it looks like to live faithfully as a citizen of the kingdom of man, our little local kingdom, our state kingdom, our, our government that we're under, Caesar for us. What does it look like? to live faithfully as citizens of this kingdom and to live faithfully as citizens of the kingdom of God. All right? So here's several principles. First of all, we owe the city of man. As citizens of this government, we owe the city of man. This is why Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. There's something that Caesar is owed by us. For example, most of us drove here this morning. And we drove on roads that were pretty decent roads, not too many potholes, depending on what road you were on, right? And, and we all got here rel- I'm, I'm safely, right? And, and, and there were certain cars on this side of the street driving this direction, and the, and the cars on this side of the street were driving the opposite direction, and that's a good thing. It wasn't just try to get to church however you can, go wherever you want. It's like, no, you go this way, and then there were these stop signs along the way and stoplights, and some of them were frustrating, why am I sitting at a stoplight when nobody else is here? Right? And so I, I'm not saying it's not frustrating, but I'm saying it's good. 
it's good that there were stoplights that told us to stop so that these people could go. And when we got to the next one, it was green, and these people stopped so we were able to go. And it was very orderly. When you drove here, I'm assuming it was relatively orderly. And you got here safely, and I'm so glad. And you drove over bridges as you came. And, 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 and all of that is provided by taxpayer dollars that our government has put to good use. Right? So we can drive here safely. And, and, and those are the kinds of goods, the kinds of benefits that a government's supposed to provide and has provided. And, and we should be good citizens of this government. Um, the government's responsibility is to provide a place so you and I can live freely and live according to our conscience and the way we think God is calling us to live and, and practice our faith the way we believe God is calling us to practice our faith. And the, and the government's role is to provide a space where we, the, the citizens, can, can try to be good citizens and live life as we believe God has called us. Our, our doctrinal statement says it like this. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. That's our agreed-upon doctrinal statement. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. Not a free church in a Baptist state or a free church in an evangelical state or a free church in a Protestant state. A free church in a truly free state is the Christian ideal. So what I want to do is point out several things that we owe to the city of man from God's Word. First of all, we owe obedience to the city of man. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now keep in mind, Paul is talking about a Roman government that was pagan and corrupt and killed Jesus and will even kill him. And he says, submit yourself to the government. What? The one that's about to kill you? Submit yourself to the government. He says, for God is the one who gave it to you. Ultimately, all governments are institutions from God given to us for our good. Right? Government is a gift from God. Even a corrupted government, even an evil government, is better than no government at all. Is better than anarchy. Like, try to live in anarchy. Try to drive to church where there's no streets and stoplights and no laws and nobody follows them. Right? And, and, and see how life goes for you. There are so many goods that are from God's common grace that we experience every day that are given to us from God through the government. The government regulates and provides for our good. And we owe obedience to Caesar because of this. Secondly, we owe money to the city of man. We owe tax to the city of man. Jesus, in this context, says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And what is immediately, what is he talking about? Taxes. That's the issue at hand, taxes. And they say, what should we do? If Jesus was a political revolutionary, he would have said, don't pay the tax. He's not a political revolutionary. He doesn't say, don't pay the tax. He basically says, pay the tax. We, there's something we owe because of the goods that are provided to us. Here's, once again, Romans 13, 6 and 7. This isn't Chris talking. This is God's Word. Romans 13, 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Paul refers to the government authorities as ministers that God has given to us, and he says, therefore, pay what you owe. It didn't say withhold it when they do evil things. Withhold it when you don't like the policies. He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. My dad was an accounting professor, and he always tried to talk me into studying accounting, and I always said, no way, I'm not doing that. But he was able to talk my wife into studying accounting, and she was a public accountant for several years. And I thought, you know, marrying an accountant, this was going to really work to my benefit, you know, financially. Like she's going to know all these laws, and it's going to be very legal and very much on the up and up. But, you know, we're going to, this is going to be for our good. And then I learned, no, it's actually the opposite. It's like she knows all these laws that I didn't otherwise know, and we actually owe more money. And as a minister, the taxes are just an absolute mess. And so uh, you marry somebody who really knows what they're doing, and they're really honest, which she is, and you'll end up finding ways to give more money to the government than you thought you were going to. And every April 15th, I have to remind myself of these truths that I'm talking about here. The government is a minister from God given to me for my good. I owe something, right? There's something we owe. So we're supposed to pay the tax. Now, don't pay more, right? I would encourage you, I'd strongly encourage you, don't pay more. Don't be like, you know, I was able to drive here today, so I think I'm going to throw in a little bit more on April 15th. So grateful for these roads. I would encourage you, don't do that, right? But do pay what you owe. And if you marry an honest accountant, get ready to pay some more than what you think you owe. Third, we owe prayer to the city of man. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he says, pray for your leaders. Why? So that they'll do their job they're supposed to do, that they'll lead fairly, rightly, so you can live a peaceful life and do what you believe God's called you to do. That's the idea. Free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. So we owe the city of man. But secondly, we have limits on what we owe the city of man. Amen? There are limits on what we owe the city of man. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but there's a place where that stops, and there's a place where you don't owe Caesar anymore. One example, an obvious example, an easy example, is worship. We don't owe worship to Caesar. In fact, it would be wrong for us to give worship to Caesar. And I just want to point out, throughout church history, this has been a real issue for many Christians who have been called on by their state to worship Caesar, have been called on by the city of man to worship the city of man, because there's not a distinction between church and state, right? And so even in Rome, Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. They didn't believe in the Roman gods, and they were persecuted for it, killed for it by the governor, by the, by the king, by the emperor. You think about Daniel who's told, bow down and worship the king. And Daniel, I can't do it. There's limits to what I owe Caesar. One of those limits is worship. There there are times when Caesar might try to require us to do something that God forbids, and we go with God every time. 
right? There might be times when God requires us to do something that Caesar forbids and we go with God. There might be times when God forbids us from doing something that Caesar requires and we go with God. We obey God. If, if Caesar ever conflicts with God, we go with God every time. Here's how our doctrinal statement says it. Civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things, not contrary to the revealed will of God. So our agreed upon doctrinal statement as a church says we will give loyal obedience in all things, not contrary to what God has clearly revealed in his word. The classic example of this is Acts 5. The apostles are told by the government, stop, worship, uh, stop evangelizing or you go to jail. And what do they say? Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And I just think it's good for us to point out there are countries today where it is illegal to evangelize. It is illegal to preach the gospel. There are countries today where it is the law of the land. It is illegal to try to win someone to Christ. And our brothers and our sisters are in an extremely difficult situation. And, and of course, they have to disobey the government. We can't do that. We have to share the gospel. We don't have any choice here. We have to do evangelism. We have to call people to come to Christ. Now, it's, it's smart to do it discreetly and do it wisely and do it underground, and many do. And some decide, you know what, we're just not going to put ourselves and our family under this, and we're going to move away, and, and, and understandably so. But I think it's good for us to just pause and, and consider that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who deal with this daily, and we should be burdened for them and pray for them. This, the whole issue of the issue of, of uh, governmental limits on what the government can require of us and how that relates to our religious liberty. This issue came up for us uh, a couple years ago when, it, when the government was saying, you can't meet for worship. We're, we're given a mandate for you to not meet for worship. And uh, we, we had a, a choice to make, and it's a difficult choice. It's a difficult decision because on one hand, the Bible teaches very clearly we're supposed to gather for worship. Hebrews 10.25, very clear. Many other passages I could look to, point to. There's a clear command of God that God's people are supposed to gather for worship. At the same time, there's a clear command from God that we are supposed to obey the authorities that God has given to us. And the authorities that God gave to us said, you don't need to meet. And so what do we do? What did we do? We, we, we took a break from meeting for less than three months. And uh, we went online instead of in person. And there were several factors that went into this. One, one factor, one question that we have to ask is, is this temporary, is this short-term, or is this long-term? Are we being asked to, meet, to, to stop meeting for like several months, or are we being asked to stop meeting for several years? And in our case, we, we stopped meeting for less than three months. A second question they have to ask is, does it make sense? Is there a good rationale? Like, does it pass the common sense factor? For example, there, there have been times in church history when governments have asked churches not to meet because they were at war. And, and, and typically, churches complied with that. They were convinced this makes sense. There's a common sense element that we would take a break from meeting publicly regularly if this is for the better good of, uh, of public safety. Uh, third question that I think we need to ask is, is the rule being consistently applied? Like, is it being unfairly applied toward churches or fairly applied toward churches? And I just want to point out, in the county that we live in, El Paso County, El Paso County was very lenient toward churches. El Paso County was more lenient toward churches than other businesses. 
And I don't know about you, but that kind of made me say, I want to be a good citizen. <laughs> you know, I want to honor what you're asking us to do. You're giving more of a break to churches than anyone else. Thank you. And, and we're going to try our best to be the best citizens we can be and honor this and trust that you guys have reasons here. All right. There are other places in our country where they were more strict toward churches than other businesses. Nevada is a classic example where they were more restrictive of churches than they were casinos. Right? And that's a problem. And a lot of those churches pushed back legally. And, and, and understandably so, and justifiably so. And a lot of those churches, I think, won in the courts uh, because our, our country in particular has a wonderful track record when it comes to religious liberty issues. And we should be extremely grateful to be in a country that has such a wonderful track record of honoring religious liberty. And I have a book I'll recommend to you that talks more about this. If you want to hear more about that, read more about that, learn more about that. The book title is Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious Liberty in America by Luke Goodrich. It's at the bottom of the sermon notes if you want to check that out. But this brings us to talk about the third principle, and that is the city of man is secondary and the city of God is primary. Philippians 3.20 says it like this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of two cities. We have dual citizenship, every one of us. Citizens of the city of man and citizens of the city of God, and we want to be the best citizens we can be of both. But at the end of the day, there's a priority given to the city of God. The city of God is our priority. The city of God takes precedence. The city of God is first. And I just want to point out several implications of this. First of all, since the city of God is primary, therefore this is where our primary focus should be. Now I want to be really clear. I've already said this. I'm not saying there's no focus on the city of man. Of course we focus here and we're good citizens and try to make an influence and get involved and roll our sleeves up. And and of course we have a focus here. But our ultimate focus is on the city of God. And the truth is, if we really do want to influence our culture, if we really do want to influence people, if we really do want to influence our country, if you really want to make an impact and influence people, true change, eternal, lasting change, it happens through advancing the kingdom of God. Right? Once again, it's not to say that we're not involved in politics. I'm not saying that. Not to say that we're not involved in trying to pass good legislation. I think we should be. But what I'm saying is, if you have an ungodly people, laws are not going to make them godly. If you have an ungodly people, politics is not going to make them godly. Right? Now, I, I, even if you have an ungodly people, I still want good politics, and I still want good policies, and I still want good legislation. Good legislation with an ungodly people is better than bad legislation with an ungodly people. Right? But the point I'm making here is if you truly want to influence and change a people, a culture, a neighborhood, a city, a country, it happens through revival. And by revival, I don't mean camp meetings, and I don't mean a weekly meeting up here at the church. I mean true changed hearts, true changed values. Our values change. Truly changed in homes, homes where the gospel is, is, is encouraged and preached and, and, and applied. And churches where we, we grow in Christ so we make an impact. This is how we impact the city of man is through advancing the city of God. The city of God is primary for us. It's our primary focus. Second, 
Because the kingdom of God is primary, therefore this is where our identity should be. We should be known as the people who belong to the city of God. I think about how Jesus called Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector to be his disciples. And these two guys would have been on two different ends of the spectrum. If you would have asked Simon the Zealot prior to coming to Christ, should we pay the taxes or not? Simon the Zealot would have said, absolutely not. He was zealous for his anti-Rome sentiments. Simon the Zealot would have said, put me in jail before I pay the tax in question. If you would have asked Matthew the tax collector, should we pay the tax? Matthew the tax collector would have said, yes, we should. And in fact, if I know you don't, I'm going to go report you to Rome. Right? And here we have these two people that Jesus calls both of them to be his disciples. I want you to be one. I want you to be on my team. And together we're going to go take the kingdom of God and advance it. You might say, why in the world would you choose these two guys who are going to fight all along the way and have disagreements all along the way and issues of policy all along the way? And I don't think it's by coincidence that Jesus says, I want to take both of you. I want to bring you in, make you one. And because what unites us is the kingdom of God. What unites us is the gospel. And that's a good reminder to us, among us. We're going to have some differences of opinion among us uh, of to what extent, when does the government overreach and when do they not. And those differences of agreement among us are just fine. And it's good to have conversations and it's good to have good, healthy debate and to discuss it. What does it look like? What do I do when I think the government has overreached? What does that mean? What does faithfulness look like for me? We're going to have some differences of opinion among us, and that's okay. Why? Because the city of God is primary. It's our primary identity. It's what unites us. It's, it's, what, it's why we're here in the first place. It's our agreement on who we are in Christ and the gospel that brings us together. Third, because the kingdom of God is primary... This is where our joy and our hope should be found. If your joy is grounded in the kingdom of God, then when things don't go quite the right way in the kingdom of man, you're still joyful because your joy is not connected to the kingdom of man. So when the wrong person in your mind gets elected or when the wrong legislation gets passed or the right legislation doesn't get passed, it doesn't totally crush you. You can still keep going. You can still be joyful. Why? Because your joy is tied to a different kingdom. And your joy is tied to a different kingdom because your hope is tied to a different kingdom. Your hope is in the kingdom of God, which is eternal. The Bible's pretty clear. No kingdom of man will last forever. Every kingdom of man will fall. There will only be one kingdom in the end that stands, and it's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. His kingdom alone will will reign and stand forever. The Bible gives us no hope about any particular city of man. The Bible gives us all kinds of hope about the city of God, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven with its king, King Jesus, reigning with his one rule and one authority. And by the way, it'll be a theocracy. And the key for you and me is just to make sure you're going to be there and make sure you're a part of that kingdom and to make sure you can influence as many other people as possible so they are there and they're a part of that kingdom. How do you become a part of the kingdom of God? It's very different from the way you become a part of the kingdom of man. In the kingdom of man, you're pretty much born into it. In the kingdom of God, you have to be born again into it. And the way you're born again into it is through looking to Jesus and trusting He is the King. And He came and willingly submitted Himself to Roman rule. He willingly submitted Himself to Caesar, an evil, pagan, corrupt government. He went to the cross for us, laid down His life for us, died in our place for our sins, 
God the Father accepted his sacrifice, raised him from the grave. Today he's reigning at God's right hand as the king. One day he'll return and everyone will know that he's the king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And my encouragement to you is don't wait until that day. But today's the day to bow your knee before King Jesus. Trust in what he's done for you. And let every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray for us.